I'm Chris Greenspawn. You're listening to The Vacuum Seal. There's a small, unincorporated town at the bottom of San Bernardino County that had about 3 million visitors last year. In the middle of this one-highway town that's home to about 7,500 residents, there's been something strange emanating from a small cabin. It starts in the cabin. Then it makes its way to an undisclosed location in the high desert. And then back to town and up a radio tower. A bunch of people download it as a podcast called Desert Oracle Radio. It broadcasts every Friday night on 107.7 KCDZ in Joshua Tree. From Amboy to Zizek's, if your signal isn't obstructed by a mountain, at 10 p.m. sharp, you'll hear coyotes cut off whatever was playing right before. And then the theme song plays like a pirate radio takeover. Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Well, night has fallen on the Mojave. The skies have been very busy. And not just at night. And this weird UFO group keeps releasing these little videos that are supposed to show UFOs zipping around and being chased by fighter jets. And that first one was pretty interesting. This episode's guest is Ken Lane, the host, writer, and engineer of Desert Oracle, which also exists as a quarterly magazine. Lane is a career writer and journalist. He got his start reporting for small papers back in the late 80s, moved on to muckraking tabloid sites by the late 90s, and up until 2012, he ran Gawker's political blog, Wonkette. Now he takes his love for the American desert and makes it into an esoteric collage of all of its beauty and horrors. UFOs, Yucca Man, and Airbnb. I met up with Lane at his tiny office on Highway 62. He's tall, wears plain dark clothes, and has short grayish-brown hair. I asked him about the principles behind Desert Oracle Radio as the AC went in and out in the background like a fluttering AM signal. The role of radio in the desert has long been the companion when you're on the highway. You're driving great distances, or if you live in a small desert town, that might be your only connection to the rest of the world. And there's something particular about being on a lonesome desert highway and searching through the radio dial for something, whether something good or something weird or something sinister or a uh, religious station, which can be all three. And it makes a desert drive, if you can find something like that, much more immersive because you have organic soundtrack. Desert Oracle was always envisioned as a radio show for a nighttime drive, but it had to find its feet as a print magazine first. Each pocket-sized issue was lovingly packed with an opening prologue, information on wildlife, historical analysis, and local news, ads, and letters to the editor, all thankfully fit into 40 pages. After two years of finding its way around desert bookstores, KCDZ's owner-slash-news anchor Gary Danio said yes to putting the Oracle on air in 2017. There's somebody buried below here. I want to see a ship. I want to see a black triangle. One woman reported that the creature ran around her house and scratched at the door like a dog. 
might just be easy if I could just get these cars and set them up out there on lots, kind of like the homestead cabin, turn them into housing. You're listening to Desert Oracle Radio. Fridays at 10 p.m., Z1077 FM, Joshua Tree, Desert Oracle Radio. The voice of the desert. Lane's on-air personality is dry and cracked. His scripts seem to go on every tangent possible, with no formal transitions between segments. He bounces between expounding on the high desert's heroes, like Minerva Hoyt, the de facto founder of Joshua Tree National Park, and its derelicts like William Burroughs and Robert Oppenheimer. With this kind of cultural pedigree, I ask Blaine where he gets off calling himself the voice of the desert. Oh, that's easy. The magazine is somewhat inspired on small-town Western newspapers, and I've worked for some of those most recently, 35 years ago. These small operations, often an editor-publisher serving a small, kind of isolated Western community, pre-internet, often pre-telephones. I've worked in places where people would drive down to the store where the phone was because they didn't have phone service, you know, up the canyon or whatever. And these publications would often have, in the style of 19th century American papers, a, a grand statement, a grand claim on the area. So it would be, let's say, the backcountry trader, the stalwart of the backcountry or something, or the Lone Pine Gazette or something. The voice of the the Sierra. Exactly. Right, right. The the conscious of the Poconos, you know, whatever. So this was a thing that papers had, this great slogan. Masthead. Right, right. You'd have your your masthead like the New York Times. They still use all the news that's fit to print. So that kind of thing. So those sorts of old newspaper self-earned mottos, I suppose. And they were made to both give legitimacy to the publication and to fit into this sort of platonic ideal of the truth teller and who keeps the community and the democracy uh, informed of important issues. So that's where Voice of the Desert comes from. And the great thing about Voice of the Desert, as soon as I thought of Desert Oracle as the name of the magazine voice of the desert went right with it with the joke being that coyotes are the voice of the desert so in the magazine when you open it up and there's the staff box masthead thing uh front matter they call it in magazines there's little silhouettes of coyotes and it says the voice of the desert between them so that's where that came from and when i did the radio show i had the announcer robot read that and i just loved how it sounded and then so i closed with it from the the first episode write to us it's radio at desertoracle.com and good night from the voice of the desert and then slowly that starts to become the slogan for the show which also has a kind of old tradition in am radio that hosts would have this kind of title that went with what they did. So George Norrie, who replaced Art Bell on Coast to Coast, he was on the radio in St. Louis at night, and he was George Norrie, the Nighthawk. So I love those things. It's uh, it was you know it was easy because it just evolved over the the mediums, and 
it just it just has such a great sound. You know, it's one of those things that I'm I'm shocked that there's not a long history of DJs or who knows, you know, country music singers or something using this. With a storm out over the desert tonight, put my mind in on the road I'm driving eight-five. I got a California roadmap crumpled under my feet. I got a pint of cheap whiskey under the seat. But I know where I'm going, and I know where I'm supposed to be. Yeah, I know where I'm going, and I know who I'm expecting to see. Well, I got a reservation at Death Valley Junction off Highway 198. Yep, that was Ken Lane singing Death Valley Junction with his band, The Outriders, who were really just his college camping buddies, Sam, Paul, and Rick. They self-released one LP. Lane says it sounded like a hairspray commercial, and it encouraged him to get a real job. But it foreshadowed a future where writing, recording, and the desert would all collide for Lane again. And he looks very sweet on the album cover. And I wonder if she misses me, if she'll notice I'm gone when she gets back. Going back even further, before he lived in any desert, Lane spent his earliest years in New Orleans. And that's where he became obsessed with UFOs. Apparently, the South was just as UFO crazy as the desert. It just wasn't known for it. Lane remembers one particular incident where the mania was as bad as what you see in Close Encounters. That was the Vicksburg encounter, which I still remember because they would put the drawings of the monsters on the news. And I was like 10 years old, and that scared the bejesus out of me. What'd they look like? Oh, God, I shudder to think. They were tall, kind of cartoonish-looking monsters with a sort of rounded head and a kind of spike coming out of the top of the head. And in one version, it just had one eye, and in one version, it had these two weird kind of slits for eyes. And they were supposed to be eight feet tall, and they took these, you know, uh, big kind of Cajun fisherman guys off and left them just like jabbering, tearful victims of, of something. And people saw them all the time. Lane says he doubts whether aliens actually exist, but it's hard to ignore the abundance of encounters from across time and across cultures, especially when he had one of his own in 2003. He was driving on Highway 395 with his wife when it happened. There is a three-step part of this kind of close encounter sighting. It starts with a light on the horizon that catches you and your party's eyes, and you don't know why, and you don't know why you care. Like, you can be driving a road you've always driven, and then there's some light that, for some reason, everyone eventually starts talking about. What is that? I don't know. It sure is low, you know, that kind of thing. But it's distant. Like, you, you're making up what it could be. Maybe it's a radio beacon. Oh, but it's not flashing. Maybe it's this. In that process, it disappears, but you don't notice because now there is something immense right next to you or right on top of you. And this is most often a triangular shaped array of lights or a solid, what appears to be solid or semi-solid translucent craft of, of some ridiculous size, 100, 200 feet across 
and you get a moment to encounter that, that moment is usually remembered as, I did not hear any other sound. All the other sounds stopped. I did not see anybody else around. I did not notice other cars on the highway. And it feels like time has stopped. And your hair stands up on your arms. If you're lucky, as I was, you see it with a witness and you get a chance to get a good, clear look at it. And then it disappears. I mean, it just like pops out of reality and you see something shooting away in the distance, like a shooting star or something that you connect with it, even though you did not see it go from point B to point C. And you see this again and again and again. And that is the normal sighting that you get that is not lights in the sky which is, I saw something distant, could have been flares, could have been a helicopter, a satellite, a planet, who knows. This is a close-up thing where there's no disputing that you've seen something right there in front of you, right by you, right near you, and it has had physical and mental effects. Lane's main basis for comparison is the slew of reports on New Fork and Reddit. Now for the journalists in the audience, this may or may not sound like BS. However, not only has Lane recounted this story in numerous interviews, he's broadcasted it and plenty of call-ins like it. But as we say in Hollywood, there's a twist. Ask a relatively normal person about UFOs and most will say they believe or they want to believe. Believe in what? Ask them what it is they believe or what they want to believe and ask them why. Oh, they will tell you about the space monsters, the space brothers, the flying saucers, the alien abductions, the alien implants. And where is all this from? Where is this narrative from? What's the thought process behind including testimonials from people who've seen UFOs while also doing something like devoting an entire episode to the shady history of UFO studies? Oh, because the deception and the cultural appropriation of UFO experiences, both as a pop culture thing and as an entertainment device, means that you can get some kind of attention by claiming a UFO sighting. At least there was a period when if you had a convincing enough UFO sighting, you could end up on Walter Cronkite. You know, you could end up on uh, the nightly news or 60 Minutes, Betty and Barney Hill and New Hampshire, these types of classic abduction cases. The guy in Arizona, the fire in the sky guy who disappeared in the mountains and they found him like days later with grim tales of what they'd done to him. So it's a shady world like religion because it is almost completely based on belief. It's something that you cannot conclusively prove Which is why, especially in Native American uh, Indian legends, these are often the trickster figures like coyotes and ravens. And you see this in all kinds of other mythology around the world where the trickster spirit is the elf or what we call now the alien. It lures you in somewhere. It offers you something. Sometimes it's scary. Sometimes it's enchanting. So... If you're going to talk about UFOs, you have to first talk about that 
there's no proven evidence of any UFOs. So there's no proven evidence other than personal testimony and people's belief, which becomes a kind of religion for them, then you have to throw out every expert because it's the only field wherein a hundred odd years of having supposed experts who spend all their time doing this, that there's no information. You know, imagine any other kind of observation-based science where there's no information that two people could agree on after a hundred years. And you'd say, well, that's not science. It might be philosophy. It might be folklore. It might be faith. It might be illusion. But there's no science to prove any of it yet. Of course, any fan of the show knows it's about so much more than UFOs and ghost stories. Desert Oracle is about literature. It's about wildlife and exploration and the encroaching specter of capitalism on some of the cheapest real estate in Southern California. For the good of enormous and openly evil technology and media and pharmaceutical companies, most of us are enslaved today. We are enslaved. We are not the customers of social media. We are the product. We are what is sold. The distinctive glue that binds the whole program together is yet another taboo for journalists. Its host openly expresses a moral high ground on all of these subjects. So why is this a part of the show? Well, I don't think you should cede morality because you work in journalism. I know a lot of journalists would dispute that because they say you can't be too pure in motive because if you are, you'll be guilty of some kind of bias and you'll also be cut off from access to people who are demonstrably not moral and don't have any feelings of guilt about it. So having a moral stance in politics especially, I think, is crucial. It always has been in history. This trying to pretend that you don't have a moral stance is one of the most self-defeating approaches you can take because you can be argued out of anything if you don't have any morals. So... You know, I did national politics stuff for the six or eight years before I started Desert Oracle. And while I don't like writing for text these sort of sermons or lectures... A little bit effervescent. Yeah, I do like doing them on the radio because... You know, I used to love like driving up through Bakersfield or something and going through all the evangelical stations. Now and then you'd hit on somebody who had some great story and they were really good at it. Joshua knew the power of prayer. And they'd have some point they were getting at. And I've heard this on all kinds of radio stations. You can hear it on the, the business stations on the weekends. There'll be some timeshare con artist or something. But he's got this great story. So for radio, I love that stuff. I love the idea of somebody having the radio station on because they were listening to a pop song that day coming back from the grocery store. And then they turn it on at night, and there's this strange voice giving them these strange coded instructions. So do you feel people need to take a stance? Oh, personally, I do very much. As far as the audience for the show goes, I'm happy for it to be considered entertainment. And and that's 
you know, I definitely didn't want to uh, make you think I was cornering you with some kind of question about journalistic ethics because it's obviously entertainment. You know, you take the odd phone call of dubious origin. But that was the thing that really shook me about it was that in a place that is given perhaps an incorrect rap for being overwhelmingly conservative, the desert, that you would go on air and say unequivocally that corporations are evil. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely the most socialist show on FM radio, I'm sure. You know, outside of maybe some public stations and uh, New England and Minnesota. But I try to keep it vague, not to insulate myself from any criticisms about it, but to make it applicable to many situations. So I like doing the radio shows more as kind of a musical theater. And of course, it's going to be driven and inspired and enraged by events that affect the location of the radio show, both real and the kind of imagined layer that's on top of it. But it should be good to listen to, even if you have no idea what I'm talking about. Does it serve a greater purpose than just atmosphere? Doing oh yeah, 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 yeah. Moralizing, yeah, it's preaching. Yeah, it's like a yeah, it's like a radio sermon. You know, it's part to give a kind of soul to the thing, and because environmentalism and land conservation and uh, clean water, these are things that are dry subjects, but they're very rapidly affecting whether or not we're going to live out the next several decades in some sort of fallout video game hellscape or whether we might be able to kind of reset things. So they are moral issues and they're issues of huge historical consequence. And when you can frame those things with the, for the moment, very desirable wild beauty of the desert that's what's drawing all these people out here i think it's a it's a great way to make converts you know to turn people to action which is not that hard it's much easier now than it was when al gore was talking about it and this brings us back to what ken and i actually talked about at the very beginning of our meeting the high desert is a tenuous environment meant only to support the hardiest of life forms. I can't remember what episode it's in, but there's a reference you make to the desert's crust being absurdly fragile. Can you give us an idea just how absurdly fragile it is? Yeah, I'll give an idea that involves my own guilt. There is a little jackrabbit track that I would walk to get from a trail to a spot in the rocks where I hike every day with my dog. And over the years that I had been walking a total of about 45 seconds each way once a day, there is a permanent trail there. Now, nothing grows. There's no flowers in the spring. There's no new little cactus. It's just sand. And that happens easily and everywhere Anywhere you have vehicles, lots of people, mountain bikes. And 
it's something that does have to be taught because if you look at the desert from a small distance, it looks like it's all sand with some plants sticking out here and there. But the truth is those plants will only grow where there's this kind of organic netting that is just barely visible, the desert crust. And the main way you can see desert crust versus just sand is that the desert crust is hard and it doesn't have loose sand on top of it. It's, it's kind of hard and you see the plants growing out of it. And it's that network. Of, is it that caked, cracky look? Exactly, exactly. It's the kind of look you never get back when you use a bulldozer or a bobcat to scrape your acre and a half in Yucca Valley like so many people do. And then you fight weeds, noxious, invasive weeds for the rest of your earthly life. So no crust, no plants, no rabbits, no lizards, no vultures, no ecosystem. That means no tourists, which means no economy for the high desert. Where do developments and new residents fit into this landscape? Well, only 25% of Joshua Tree's population today lived there in 2000. Lane attributes this uptick to the arrival of high-speed internet connections within the last decade, which allowed the creative class, like himself, to move out of megalopolis. Late last year, Desert Magazine published an article on what Joshua Tree looks like now, post-Instagram filter. I'll link it on the web, but here's a recap. Decent housing once cost 60 to 100 grand. Now it's more like three to $400,000. Many long-term rentals, including trailers and ceramic domes, have become short-term rentals. Between summer of 2016 and 17, the number of Airbnb hosts in Joshua Tree increased by 48%. The Joshua Basin Water District reports heavier use. Keep in mind, they use septic tanks. Restaurant and bar business has exploded. Again, remember the septic tanks. And there's been an increase in trespassing and loud parties. Besides commerce, Lane sees at least one silver lining to the influx of artists in the high desert. He says these are the kinds of people who usually set up land trusts and ballot measures. So, at least for the time being, it's hard to gentrify public land. What do you want someone who visits the desert to leave with besides their trash? If you come to the desert to get this sort of mystical desert experience, the best thing to do is to go somewhere quiet, not necessarily Pappy and Harriet's for a three-hour wait for a hamburger. You know, God bless Pappy's. They're doing great. Um, but they're swamped with people. There's not much to do in the desert. You know, there's not stuff to do. Maybe if you come for like the yoga festival or there's all these festivals. If you come out for that, you're going to see a bunch of other people just like the people you hang out with. And hopefully you enjoy yourself. But to have a desert experience, you're going to go camp somewhere, hopefully somewhere quiet, maybe rent a little place out in North Joshua Tree, maybe go drive across the Mojave Preserve or something. And the combination of the quiet and the landscape and giving yourself time to not be looking at your phone or a computer or Netflix or whatever. Your life. Yeah, yeah. You're going to, you will leave with, if nothing else, a little more sanity because you'll be 
rested a bit. Your brain will be refreshed. Your soul, hopefully, will be at least briefly awoken. And you'll come back with a appreciation for these desert wildlands that you might have never given any thought to before it became cool. You know, you might have never thought about the Mojave in your life before Instagram, but it was there all that time. And it's because people over the last hundred years have aggressively protected all this stuff that we have it. You know, you look at the map of Southern California and almost all of the desert is public land outside of the Coachella low desert Valley in a couple of small cities, Barstow, et cetera. And that's not by accident. You know, people made that their life's work. People like uh, Minerva Hoyt, who got Joshua Tree turned into a national monument because she was rich and she had a, uh, an end to FDR. So, yeah, bring your trash back, please. And otherwise, if it affected you deeply, make it a habit and support some environmental groups who are trying to protect it because there are people aggressively trying to take it away even though it's the entire basis of our economy out here that was ken lane the host and writer of desert oracle radio and desert oracle magazine i'd like to thank ken for his candor both as a journalist and as voice of the desert if you'd like to thank him, subscribe to his paper. It's 25 bucks for four solid issues. And remember to rate and review both of our podcasts on iTunes. Special thanks to Red, Blue, Black, Silver, who does the music for Desert Oracle and allowed me to use it for this interview. And to Kristen Sharkey, the editor of Desert Magazine, for her great article on the recent changes in the high desert. Until next time... I'm Chris Greenspawn. You've been listening to The Vacuum Seal. Vacuum Seal.